morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Love the song. Thank you. To my, to my ear, uh, the little Diane Shurish, Anita Baker chords, some jazz. It's really nice. I love the meditation. Thank you. Um, I feel like I always feel when I come here, and that is pretty much enough has been said. Uh, but here I am because, of course, what you want is somebody with expertise in business ethics now guiding you through saints and mystics. I mean, that <laughs> makes perfect sense, right? Uh, though I came, I came to business ethics late. Um, I actually started with saints and mystics, so I'll, I'll look backwards as well as forward in the talk. This one was a challenge. Uh, it's, I mean, it's all a challenge, but uh, this one especially. Uh, oftentimes when I'm out here and I look up and I see, you know, you're, you're puzzled and confused and frustrated and sometimes angry faces, uh, I think to myself, you know, I take a moment, I think to myself, okay, well, that's on them because I know what I'm saying, you know. <laughs> uh, but this one, maybe I will bear some small responsibility for. What I, what I want to go is backwards a little bit personal saints and mystics and then to um, misfits, this the allusion to the title, Misfit Humanity, talk a little bit about uh, current science and especially this movement called transhumanism. Uh, so we'll see if I can get there or, or not. Okay. Um, so saints, very compelling. When I was young, as a Presbyterian, of course, very mysterious. Um, didn't make a lot of sense. And yet, the picture was, all right, here's uh, a bastion, uh, the epitome of moral courage, nobility, uh, somebody who's clear about their moral stance, and all the while basking in the light of God, uh, even if it cost him or her their lives. Um, and I thought to myself in college, believe it or not, I would like to become a saint. Um, <clears throat> probably even before that, I was under the influ influence of Thomas Merton and, and others. Well, all you have to do is want to be one. And I had a very good friend at the time, a guy named Cliff, um, who was a taller, smarter, Better looking, better looking version of me. And when I say that out loud, I'm thinking to myself, why in the world was I friends with this guy? <laughs> he, sounds, he sounds annoying as hell. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, we had uh, any number of tortured conversations as 21-year-olds you know, will do. Okay, you know, what do we do with our lives now? Do we tr go off to graduate school and study about these people that we so admire or do we go to the monastery and try to become these people? Well, he went to Chicago and I went to Boston. Um, you may know that Boston and Chicago have more graduate schools than they do monasteries, so that answers that question. Um, and shortly after I got to, to grad school, still thinking, all right, I'll go to grad school, but you know, not only will I be holy, I'll be learned as well. What a great combination, right? <laughs> who, who could not find that appealing? Um, <clears throat> In 1982, a philosopher named Susan Wolfe wrote uh, an article called The Trouble with Saints. I don't know if it's been referenced yet or anybody familiar with this one. It has taken on a life of its own. It's actually quite famous and influential in the very small circles in which I live. Um, the Trouble with Saints. What could possibly be the trouble with saints? Well, in a word, saints are, she says, boring. And she said, the problem with saints is they spend so much time, in fact, all of their time devoted to a fairly narrow circle of moral traits, just trying to be as good as possible, that they exclude from their lives the development of an awful lot of other traits that most of us normal humans actually find likable. 
and, and compelling. And she cites, for example, wit, said, you know, sense of humor, um, kind of tone, you know, all kinds of things that most of us normally find appealing. And she said, the problem with saints in the long run is that they're bland, humorless, and boring. And I read that and I thought to myself, oh, what a relief. Because frankly, the whole becoming a saint thing was not going very well. <laughs> and I was easily persuaded to give it up. Um, uh, it turned out that in my 20s, as well as my 30s and 40s, um, I was much better at studying uh, morality than I was at practicing it. And so the giving up the saint business was, was not that hard. Good. Poof. Ixnay on the saint stuff. That's gone. Excellent. What's next? Uh, mystics and mysticism. And so about that time, I'm also being introduced to uh, Buddhism and then finally the flavor that appealed to me the most, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Well, that's cool because their whole kind of thing is beyond good and evil. You know, um, this whole being in duality of good and evil, that's the problem. Your mind is stuck. You've got to go beyond that. And so a lot of the, the practices I got introduced to, including especially the Vajrayana, the Tantra, were very transgressive, you know, at least on paper and sometimes in, in practice, all kinds of things that seem to be more and moral busting. And you have to do this for the liberation of, of X, Y, and Z. That was all very compelling. Um, and that combined with something I've talked about here before, which was the introduction to uh, psilocybin, which I've already talked about here, so I won't talk about it again. Those two things I would point to as maybe two of the, the what, most profound introductions to the possibility of something like uh, a mystical experience, which I'm gonna use an expansive definition. It sounds like it's already in play here from what I heard this morning, and that is, um, you know, it's really a, a deep, profound, perhaps even transforming insight um, that has not been institutionalized. It's not readily available. It comes as a gift of genius. Perhaps you've laid the ground through some sort of practice. Uh, in any way, artists, scientists, um, as well as quote-unquote religious figures are uh, open to uh, some kind of profound mystical experience that informs them and hopefully the rest of us as well. Well, that's cool. So the mystical experience uh, was, I won't go you know, too much detail into this, it was a yamantaka sadhana, which was a teaching about how to overcome death, and they mean that for, the, for you to take that literally as well as sort of um, psychologically. So really the fear of death. Yama in the Hindu pantheon, the, the lord of death, he holds the Baba Chakra, the wheel of life, in his hands always crushing it. We're all bound to endless you know, cycles of death and rebirth. Um, what can you do about that? Well, you can understand the nature of death and overcome it. So there I am in upstate New York um, with a Tibetan-speaking Rinpoche. Uh, and in translation, you know, being introduced to this fairly esoteric sadhana about you know, visualization practices and certain kinds of mantras and transgressive practices that are supposed to release one from the fear of death. And that's cool, I'm all in, but at the same time, um, you know, I am just a nice Midwestern boy raised in the Presbyterian church with rationalist tendencies. There's a part of me thinking, okay, this is insane. <laughs> I paid for it, here I am. So uh, the third night, I'm starting to have some really pretty vivid, lucid dream, what they call lucid dreaming. Um, some very strong premonitions about my own death. I keep doing this. If you know anything about the visualization practice in tantric Buddhism, 
there's a figure who represents our own psyche or figures who represent aspects of our psyche. You're not supposed to worship those in any way. You identify with them. You sort of deconstruct them and then build yourself back up in their place. So you are that, that is is you. So by the end, you know, I'm Yamantaka, the slayer of death. Ooh, good for me. Um, except it turns out to be pretty powerful because the seventh evening that I'm there, the Yamantaka in my mind as I'm meditating transforms into a pretty complicated Tibetan vowel, which then, seemingly under no control of my own, slowly dissipates into its various constituent elements and finally blows out altogether. And in that moment when it blows out, I get a very clear experience of my own death. Now, not literally, because I'm still here, but <laughs> a very strong sense of what it would be and will be to die. And while there was a moment of anxiety uh, associated with that, I would say for the most part, it was very, very peaceful. It was remarkably um, a moment of absolute serenity and acceptance and clarity, uh, rare in my <clears throat> normal experience in daily, daily life. So very happy for those experiences, uh, corroborated by the, um, the organic uh, mushroom experiences as well. I do know that there is something in here, leave open the possibility of out there, that is, um, you know, can inform, does inform our normal waking experience. So I'm all, you know, happy for the saints, happy for, for the mystics. I don't live in either space anymore. Um, I've given up really exciting investigations into the internal life to teach business ethics. Uh, <laughs> and they, they don't, don't ask me why. Um, but I try to bring all of that, of course, into, into the teaching. But here's the problem, I guess, well, the problem with being a saint is it's A, boring, and B, really, really, really hard, and you oftentimes end up dead. Trouble with mysticism, I suppose, is, you know, it's, you have to make a living, too. People are not generally, you know, welcome. I mean, in lots of ways, it's also very hard. Um, so better to default to, to misfit dumb, right? Uh, easier to be there, and I've never met anybody in their life who doesn't consider themselves a misfit of one kind or another. Uh, last week in the news, Tom Cruise, I don't know, I was, in, I was bored, MSN was right there. <laughs> Tom Cruise was talking about, oh, I've never felt at home in Hollywood, I've always felt like this terrible misfit in Hollywood. Tom Cruise, the epitome of Hollywood feels like a, a, a misfit in, in Hollywood, okay. So right, we're all there, everybody's a black sheep, I mean, hello, you know, <laughs> um, right, and all that. Um, so let's go to misfit dumb, not just as something we feel or experience individually, but something we are collectively as homo sapiens, as, as human beings. And to, to get to some of the, the crux of this, why we can't stay in that, the good place as it were, and life can't be beautiful all the time, uh, I think of Peter Matheson, some of you may know that name, best-selling author, uh, Zen priest, naturalist. He's up in the Himalayas. He writes this book called The Snow Leopard. It's this amazing journey of you know, trying to find the snow leopard, which also stands in for enlightenment. Whole life has been devoted to Zen practice. He's up there in the Himalayas. He's meditating. He gets it, right? Finally, everything that he's been reading, everything he's heard about, everything his teachers have said, he's there in his beautiful setting, and ba -ba, the veil finally falls. Reality itself 
exposes itself to him. He is the embodiment of wisdom and compassion. Bam, right? Goes to sleep that night. <sighs> you know, a whole new transformed person. Then he, as he writes in the book, I wake up the next morning. I'm the same shitty, schlocky self I was yesterday morning. What happened? Right? What happened? And that, to me, is the human condition in a nutshell, right? Peaks and, and valleys, incredible insights, incredible aspirations. And then um, I think I'll just do something now really self-destructive in the face of that. <laughs> and so what that leads me to, and what I want to talk about for the rest of the time, this notion of misfit, is looking at uh, a couple of articles by a, a poet, literary critic, a uh, futurist named uh, Adam Kirsch. He has articles in both The Atlantic and The American Scholar this month, and loosely affiliated, or at least familiar with, um, there is an institute at Oxford University in, in the UK, of course, called The Future of Humanity. It's probably the epicenter of this notion of uh, transhumanism. So, all right, <clears throat> here's humanity um, at an evolutionary crossroads, yet again, <laughs> as we always are. And two forks in the road these days that are becoming more and more popular, more and more influential. And even if they never come to fruition, they are still going to, going to uh, probably influence the nature of discussions and, and perhaps even um, you know, politics and, and where we go. So one is the anti-humanist road, which is the, uh, oftentimes linked with the Anthropocene. Probably don't have to explain to this group what that is, right? Human beings have become so influential over and so entangled in nature that there is no aspect of nature now separate from our impact on it. Uh, and that is not a good thing, right? So Toby Ord and other people, philosophers and environmentalists who write about this, give us a one in five, one in six chance at best of still being here in a hundred years. And even those of us who are still here in a hundred years um, probably won't want to be, to be one of those scenarios, right? So there are even a subset of these anti-humanists um, called anti-natalists, and their whole, you hear from the word, it's like, don't have children, don't ever have children, <laughs> stop having children. Uh, and they give all sorts of, again, environmental reasons. And to the objection, well, you know, life on the planet, the planet itself will have no meaning if human beings aren't here. We're the conscious minds who can interpret and give meaning to all that. He said, only, only, only in their arrogance would human beings think that, right? We're the only species who would think that. <laughs> Just said, wouldn't it be wonderful to know what the other species think about that? <laughs> anyway. So that's one, that's one path. Uh, and like I said, the, you know, depending on who you talk to, there's a growing body of artists, philosophers, science, scientists, et cetera, uh, on that path, um, 100 years, give or take. Okay, the other part that's a little bit more interesting to me these days is this notion of transhumanism. It starts in the 1980s, coalesces. You know something is coalesced when it has its own journal. I mean, I, I gotta say, I just love references like to the Journal of the International Psychologists of South Africa. That's like so where I live. That's so great. <laughs> Any other obscure references, anybody out there? <laughs> Perfect. Um, transhumanism is this notion that, right, the anti-humanists are probably more or less right about you know, the time frame if we don't get it together. But, but we not only can get it together, but we're pretty much already laid the groundwork for getting it together. 
That's because human beings are that one species who do what nobody else does. We're not stuck. We can change. We can innovate. We can have these deep, profound, mystical insights. We can become saints. We can. There's no fixed human nature, according to them, except our outright desire to get and be better. Right? Now, obviously, the anti-humanists come back and say, yeah, look where that's gotten us. All your science and technology, the ocean's covered with plastic, blah, blah, blah. Right? They said, no, 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 you missed the point. I said, you're right. We got to stick around long enough, these hundred years. But we're only three or four generations away from the genetics, the robotics, right? And everything else we need to transform humanity itself. Homo sapiens are not the last station here on the, on the ride. Said, and if you doubt that, one of the ways they, many of them were more grandiose than this, but the folks who were kind of trying to, to you know, persuade the rest of us that this is the way to be thinking about the future, is if you think about a cyborg, right? Somebody who's part human and part um, mechanics, he said, look, 10% of Americans are already cyborgs in the technical sense, in which some kind of implant, some kind of technical intervention or biomedical intervention that's keeping them alive, enhancing their performance, what, whatever it might be. So, so whatever repugnance we might feel at no longer being quote unquote human, the transhumanists are saying no. Said so the genetics, the robotics, it's all the CRISPR especially, right? We're gonna get past our, our sort of you know, immediate repugnance to that. Look, we got past in vitro fertilization, everybody was at our, up in arms about that. All kinds of interventions in changing us for the better to help us become um, well, as the transhumanists would say, more fully human, uh, in fact, than we are to become transhuman, to, to, to truly develop all of our capacities beyond the limitations that we face now, physically and cognitively. They also point to, look, we've already mapped the genome. We, we can do the same thing with, uh, with a neural network in the brain. It's called the connectrome. Right? Neuroscientists are working on that. We just got to throw more and more money on this stuff, throw our best people, best scientists all around the world to this. We can do this. And even if, even if the planet goes to hell in 100 years, it's okay because you can download. And I referenced this last time that I was here. David Chalmers and others are really on the forefront of this. Um, we'll be able to download in a vat of you know, silicon um, essentially our memories, what we've learned. We can continue to exist individually uh, in as long as all the connections are, are still there. We won't need bodies eventually to do this. And this leads to great colonization. It sounds very sci-fi, but the scientists who are behind this say, look, you know, they're very careful to point out the, the, uh, the technological breakthroughs that are going to, in time, make all this possible. And two articles in the last week. Uh, one from uh, Harvard and one from, I don't remember the other one, sorry, uh, was on uh, anti-aging techniques, new breakthroughs in anti-aging techniques, really a huge step forward. Um, that's gonna make a big difference in who and how we are down the road. The other one was in supercomputing, going from 10 to the 15th power, 17th power, which is the biggest, most powerful supercomputer at the moment, making another leap in, in that aspect said just leaps and bounds here and there. And sometimes scientists are a little quiet about this stuff because you know there are a lot of us who get freaked out about, okay, what does it mean if we're gonna be no longer human or the machines take over? We're dealing with that right now in my own profession. Uh, some of you may have heard of this uh, new thing, um, the chat uh, GPT, which is a better writer than almost any undergraduate anywhere on the planet. 
Um, and so we've got to figure out what to do with that. I've got, and, there, in, and even if none of this stuff fills its promise, here's an example of the difference it makes. So we've got now a serious conversation in the last few months, all right? Do we still require good writing, make people write essays, and make, it's 1974 again in the classroom, you know, you're writing with a pencil on a blue book, so, or do we say the hell with that? Look, that's an amazing breakthrough. People don't, there are gonna be three people on the planet who really need to know how to write anymore. Everybody else can just use that, and we free up space for people to do, go this direction rather than learning how to write. So I won't involve you in all that. But I mean, it's all these technological breakthroughs raise kinds of questions about what do we do in the moment, right? What should our policies be? What do we demand of humans, et cetera? All right, so um, transhumanism leads to a choice or will lead to a choice in 100 years or so if we get there. And it won't be a choice for me, it'll be a choice for my children if all these promises are delivered on. And the choice will be this, and it's why most transhumanists tend to be libertarians, because the pushback is, I want to remain human. Well, you know, don't have to be, you, know, you don't have to, sorry, you don't have to have nanorobotics, you know, injected into your bloodstream to fight the cancer and the dementia. So you don't have to turn green. If your friends are all like, let's be green this week, you don't have to, you know, that's, that's cool. It'll be your choice. At the same time, there should be a choice for anybody who wants to engage in all these cognitive, biologically enhancing features to do that, to survive the Anthropocene, and to go on from there. So what are some of the pros and cons of actually choosing to be transhuman, which by the name suggests more than human. Of course, the detractors think, well, that's less than, than human. What advice would I give to my 13 and 15-year-old as these sorts of choices begin to present themselves to them. So what are the advantages right now of being human as we know it, all right? And you almost have to go poetic, I think, because said, so who would turn down the chance to have every disease cured, right? Who would turn down the chance to be as smart as humanly possible? Who's gonna turn down all these amazing things if they all come to fruition? And for my girls, I would only say, I think um, there is a great deal of beauty in the complexity. There's a great deal of beauty, you won't believe this, even in some of the suffering. Said so there is something to be gained by being or remaining a misfit that can't be learned in any other possible way. Way. There's no downloadable way to have experienced everything that you're going to need to come out on the other side of that with resiliency, compassion, and wisdom that is hard won. Um, so when I think about that journey, short journey, from the perfection of sainthood, giving that up, and then the perfection of mystical insight, to the perfection, um, at least the promise of perfection in transhumanism, maybe what I would say to them is, perfect is alluring, said, but it may in fact end up being boring. So, thank you.